I felt like I did too much like pull-ups, wing pull-ups, sit-ups, push-ups, all that stuff. And I should have focused more on quality, but that's really hard when climbing is your job and it's the only thing you're doing. Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show, where I talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game, and also what they're psyched on outside of their own personal climbing. Now today we're chalking up for a chat with one of the most recognizable, creative, and successful climbers in the entire world, Magnus Mitbo. Now I'd venture to say that exactly zero people listening to me right now are not familiar with Magnus. He is a wildly successful YouTuber with more than 2 million subs at the time of this recording, and his videos, a mix of climbing content and general feats of strength and resilience, have amassed hundreds of millions of views. But of course Magnus isn't just some guy who hit it big on YouTube. This guy walks the talk and has been doing so for decades now. In his teens and 20s, Magnus was a dominant force on the IFSC circuit, logging over a dozen wins including Youth World Champion, and he was, and let's be honest, still is, one of the strongest climbers in the world, with sport ascents up to 9B or 515B, and an 8C plus or 514C on-site. He's also notched many 9A and 9A plus routes, including Thor's Hammer in Flatanger, a route that Magnus bolted, and as you'll hear in our discussion today, that introduced Adam Andra to that notorious cave, which now holds the hardest sport route in the world, Silence. Now these days you're more likely to find Magnus climbing impressively hard boulders in his gym in Oslo, sometimes on video with crusher guests including Adam Andra and Will Bosey and many others, and sometimes just by himself, no cameras, to unwind after a hard day of editing his latest million view video. Now in this conversation Magnus opens up fully about his struggles, his learnings, fears, and dreams, and honestly I was caught a little bit off guard here, but in a good way, with just how open and how honest and vulnerable he was as we navigated the show's usual format, and then branched out into topics that only Magnus could speak to, including a behind-the-scenes look at the infamous time that he free-soloed with Alex Honnold. Check your knot, y'all. This conversation has it all. All right, how about a little update on my climbing and training here for a second? It's early December as I'm recording this, and temps are finally getting nice and crispy here at the Red. It's been a really warm autumn, and I was out on my project last week, this 513A that I'm working on, the hardest route that I've ever tried to climb, and after numbing out on the warm-up, conditions turned just perfect. Low humidity, nice sticky rock, and I managed to notch a new high point, you guys. I'm so excited. I clipped the last draw. I shook out for a little bit and then I started into the final sequence to the chains. So the psych is very, very high because I feel like this thing just might happen now in the next few sessions. I mean, there's still some stuff for me to dial in up there and namely that's some very specific foot beta. So I need to get this high left foot into a small pocket, rock over onto that, set my right foot on a low pocket, then turn my left into a drop knee and make this kind of big last cruxy red point move. And so I tried that new beta the last time out, and I honestly wasn't sure if I was going to be able to keep my feet on the wall there. But lo and behold, y'all, my Scarpa instincts stuck to those little pockets like a dream. Now, I've been climbing this route exclusively in my instincts because I have found them to be just the absolute perfect fit for this steep route as I tow into pockets, edge on these little smeary knobs, and even utilize the top rubber to cam my foot into a much needed rest position right before that last sequence that I was just talking about, 
These shoes have it all. There is a reason that the Instincts are the go-to shoe on technical climbs, from Maddie Hong on Biography to Nina Williams on China Beach. They just deliver every single time. Scarpa is a sponsor of the show. I'm so proud to have them here. They've been sustainably making the best footwear for climbers, trail runners, skiers, and hikers since 1938, y'all. They're trailblazers in their commitment to sustainable production, carving a path for those of us who seek not only peak performance, but also a planet that'll be preserved to be explored for generations to come. I love my approach shoes, I love my climbing shoes, and I think you will too. You can shop the whole collection at scarpa.com. Scarpa, no place too far. And this episode's also sponsored by our friends over at the Kaya Climb app. And if you enjoy bouldering outdoors, which I'm sure you do because it's so much fun, this is just the absolute best resource to add to your kit, y'all. They've worked with local experts to create digital guidebooks for more than 50 top bouldering areas like Bishop, Red Rock, Joe's, Squamish, Leavenworth, Rocky Mountain, and more being added all the time. Just check what they're doing up on their Instagram. They just added like three last week. And it's all right there on your phone with GPS pinned boulders, beautiful photos, and accurate directions, even when you don't have a signal. What? Yes, no more wandering around the woods, wondering where that five-star rig is. Plus, y'all, my favorite feature, over 300,000 community uploaded beta videos for when you get shut down on a project. No more trying to find something on YouTube and the person's two feet taller than you or whatever. If you need some beta videos, they're right there. If you don't want beta, it's fine. Just don't watch them. It's all right on your phone in one beautiful place. Plus, they've partnered with Access Fund to help protect the areas that we all love to climb. So cool of them. Y'all hit that link in your show notes to download a free version of the Kaya Climb app and also to get 20% off the pro version if you want to upgrade, which has so many cool features. It's only like five bucks a month for all of those guidebooks. Check it out. I love what Kaya's doing. And lastly, y'all, just a huge shout out and a big, big thank you for all of you patrons and subscribers out there. I've seen dozens of new members coming in this month and man, does that make me feel good. I am just so happy to hear that you're loving all the bonus content out there, including full uncut videos, extra episodes, and of course, getting your questions answered by guests, which Magnus does for y'all today in a 30 minute bonus episode. I'll tell you more about that at the end of this conversation, but thank you again so much for your support. All right, if you got a shirt on right now, think about just pulling that thing off because today's guest would tell you that it is holding you back. Let's dive in with Magnus Mitbo. How are you, man? It's really good to meet you. Yeah, likewise. I've listened to your podcast for a while. Whenever I'm in the car and driving places, I like to listen to podcasts. So I've listened to quite a few of your episodes and uh, I think they're really nice. Oh, thank you for saying that. Yeah. It means a lot. It's a hell of a lot of work, as you know. Yeah, it is. Yeah, definitely. But uh, I hope it it's uh, paid off so far. Well, my uh, wife calls it the most time-consuming and expensive way to talk to your heroes. Oh, really? <laughs> and she's not. Are you not able to make money off of it now? Are you not doing this professionally? You know, I want to. I'm like, I'm working towards it. I got a family. I got kids. You know, like, I can't. Yeah. I'm not quite at the scrappy point in my life where I could make it work. I do have sponsors, which is awesome. I'm growing a Patreon community, which is great, but, right. you know, it's not quite to the point. So it's a little bit of a side hustle right now, but I'm, I'm dreaming of, uh, 
making this the thing. And I think it, I think it might, you know, you, you certainly serve as some inspiration in that, in that world. Uh, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it might seem a little bit insecure, but I, I think that if you can, at least if you have different platforms, you know, if you have a little bit on YouTube and then Spotify and Instagram, if you get a little bit of, I, I think it's a pretty secure way of doing things. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, you know, I'm hustling. I'm hustling like crazy here in the uh, podcast slash utility closet. And, and I do have, you know, I, I have YouTube. I launched YouTube not too long ago, and that's been taken off in a good way. Um, obviously, we'll be doing some, some video content from this conversation here. So that'll be fun. And uh, the podcast, I just love because I, I have full control and I get to have cool conversations like this one here. So let's, uh, let's, let's jump in. Um, looks like everything's good on your side. We're recording. Do you have any questions? Anything that you would want to cover or not cover before we get into the format here? Not really. No, I don't have anything special. Um, so whatever. And I'm not really sensitive to anything either. You can ask me anything. I don't really care. So don't feel like you will offend me. Um, well, I appreciate. I'm it. not easily offended. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, I hope I don't put that to the test in this conversation, but no, 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 thank you. I'm really psyched, man. This is a conversation that I've been looking forward to for a very long time. And I'm grateful for your time because I know how busy you are and I know how much work it takes to do what you do. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's great to be on your podcast finally. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, let's dive in because you've listened, you know, uh, some of the pillars that we'll go through. And I think I'll kind of break this into a couple chapters actually the, the normal training nutrition tactics mental game struggle all of that stuff but also i want to make sure i reserve some time at the end to really nerd out over youtube and over the content mm -hmm. that you've created and also a lot of the cool projects that you've been working on like bouldering blueprint and and the gyms and this kind of thing so i'll try to keep us on track here but we'll see where it goes yeah. though i like to jump off in the same spot and that's struggle so when you, yeah. when you look at your climbing life, Magnus, specifically through the lens mm -hmm. of climbing, but we can kind of work outside of that a little bit if we want, but how would you define struggle? What's your relationship with struggle as a climber? Uh, I mean, it's, struggle is like 90% of climbing, I would say. Uh, you struggle on most things. If you're not struggling, it's not hard enough, uh, basically. So I would say that I have struggled a lot and uh, it's a good thing. Uh, the struggle is good. It sounds like you embrace the struggle. Like, is there is there much conflict yeah. there, or do you feel like struggle is what helps to drive excellence? No, I, I like the struggle. The struggle is good. Yeah. If I have periods where I don't like to struggle, I usually get weaker. So when you're in that mindset of enjoying the struggle, that's a good thing. Where are you struggling right now with your climbing? Um, right now, it's more just to balance everything, uh, and I'm not really. I mean, now I'm doing maintenance more than training, really. I try to climb as much as possible, but I'm not getting any better. So I'm just trying to not get so much worse. That's kind of my main goal right now. So it's very up and down. Some weeks I'll climb every day. Other weeks I won't climb at all. So it's like finding that motivation. I feel like over a year, I will, I feel like I start again so many times. <clears throat> like I take breaks of two weeks or something and then I have to start over again. So that is a struggle right now. Yeah, it, it's interesting you mention um, kind of like these breaks and this concept of maybe recognizing you may not be getting better. You're trying not to get worse. You, you did a video um, not too long ago where you essentially retested these feats of strength that you had done mm -hmm. in the past. Some of them 
many years ago, some of them more recently. It was a pinky one-arm pull-up and 156 mm -hmm. or 157 on the campus, the one-arm muscle-up, these very famous feats of strength that you'd done. And I'm curious what surprised you when you retested some of those feats from when you were perhaps a little bit more focused on your training. Yeah, I mean, I was uh, surprised that on the dynamic strength, I was worse, I would say, but on the more static exercises, I felt better or the same or better than before. And that's without like training, uh, it's like less than half of the training that I used to do. So that was a little bit surprising, but not that surprising. I feel like when you get older, you also get more static and slow and, but at the same time, also sometimes stronger. And I know a lot of climbers who have kind of peaked in their forties. So I don't, I never use age just like an excuse. I, I always get annoyed when people, everyone will say that, oh, I'm so old, I'm so old, I'm getting old. But when I look back at this, uh, 10 years from now, I will say, what were you talking about? You were 35, you were so young. Why were you complaining about being old? You know, I, it's the same as when I was 25 too. I felt like, oh, getting old, like all these youngsters, like Adam Ondra, there's so many good kids around. And now when I think back at it, I was like, 25 is nothing, you know? So you always think that you're old and, but you never actually be old. So I, I try not to think too much about that. And especially since climbing is a sport where you can peak at really, uh, when you're older. So, uh, yeah, for, for me, it's more that, I mean, I've been at a pretty high level and I feel like maintaining that takes so much time and effort. Um, so for me, it's not really worth it at this point in my life. Um, so, so that is also kind of a struggle right now is to find a motivation for climbing. Like I don't have a set goal that I'm training for. I just try and try to maintain and that can sometimes be hard. Yeah, it's, well, it's really interesting to see in that video where you were retesting some of those exercises and challenges that not only did you maintain, but you actually improved on certain ones. So like like the hang on the 20 mil on the Beast Maker, I feel like you blew mm. your time out of the water, like you almost doubled your time or something like that, right? Yeah, on my left hand, I was a lot stronger than the last time I tried. And that's something that you hadn't been training? Yeah, not really, not that emotional. Um, I do it uh, occasionally, but I, yeah, uh, it's also like up and down. It really depends on how strong I feel that day, really. Uh, but I had a good day, so I felt pretty strong on it. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, that kind of stuff and like finger strength, all that stuff, I feel like I'm almost the same. And I think that's also a lesson I wish I could have t told my younger self is that maybe I trained a little bit too much because I feel like I, I was always tired. So I never got those like really good sessions where I feel completely rested because it was my, it was the only thing I did back then was climb and nothing else. So I, I think I'm climb too much sometimes and I've always enjoyed training. So I felt like I did too much like pull-ups, wing pull-ups, sit-ups, push-ups, all that stuff. And I should have focused more on quality, but that's really hard when climbing is your job and it's the only thing you're doing. Yeah. There's some pressures there to, if you have the title of professional climber, you feel understandably, a lot of the guests that I talk to on the show feel the pressure to then continue to try to push themselves and not have that downtime. But how interesting now that you aren't able to have that much downtime because you're creating these incredible videos, yeah. you have more time to recover. And is that what you would chalk up part of the performance when you look at that video. Now you weren't able to do like the pinky one arm pull up, which is understandable. Yeah. That was bonkers. Even when you did it back 
in the day, but to do 20 some seconds on a Beastmaker without training all that much, does it, did it redefine what you think maybe it takes in order just to stay fit? And I'm curious also, what does your weekly training look like in order to maintain? Yeah, I felt like, like now my weekly training, I would say three times per week, that's enough for me, even two times per week. If I have two good sessions a week and not really long sessions either. Most of my sessions are like an hour and a half, maybe. As soon as I start feeling fatigued, tired, I'll just stop. And it's not very organized either. It's basically me just fluffing around a little bit and then doing some dead hangs. And it's not, I don't have a diary or a workout plan or anything like that. So yeah, for me, it's just, I've always been naturally pretty motivated to just pull hard. And I feel like if I have too much of a plan, it just gets in the way of that motivation I have. So for me, that works better. Yeah, I, I've, but yeah, what was your original question though? I feel like well, I, no, I mean, it covered a lot of it because I've, I've heard you also say in the past that one doesn't need a complicated plan in order to get good at climbing, in order to train. And so it's it really surprised me in that video that you were still able to do the 156, nearly a 157, just as you were back when you were more dialed on your training. Same thing. You improved, in fact, on your hang on the 20 mil edge on the beast maker. Yeah. So I'm curious for me as somebody who's also very busy. And I think a lot of people who are, are mm -hmm. watching as well, what does it take? Like essentially how much can we pull back in order to likely maintain or maybe even improve on what we have if we can't spend five days a week in the gym? Yeah. I think this is also very personal and I think that's important. It's, it's the same also. I, I remember when I used to compete. Like everyone's training is so differently. Some people can train two times per day and feel strong and perform really well, but other people will train like three or four times per week and be equally strong. So I think it depends also on your body type and just a lot of different things. So I think it's more individual than people think maybe. Yeah. And then when you're going in and climbing, so you're saying maybe two or three days a week you're going in and it's not super structured. I've seen some of these, you've posted some videos on this. Are you just trying hard on boulder problems, on set boulder problems and having fun? Or do you try to hit certain skills or certain weaknesses so that they don't slide? No, for me, it's just, to be honest, I try to always do all the boulders in the gym. Like if I can do every set boulder, commercially set boulder, I'm usually pretty strong. And there are some strong setters at my gym. So for me, that works out pretty well. And we have a really good spray wall. I use that sometimes, but not that much. And I also use like kilter board and wood boards and all that stuff. Uh, I don't do so much campusing, but I do, yeah, of course, the Beastmaker. I also train a lot on Beastmaker. But yeah, I don't know. I Also, when I competed, I tried to do like periodization. So I would do different periods where I would get really, like really tired. I would break myself down, but I think I kind of overdid that when I look back at it now, I think I did too much of that. I think those high quality sessions, that's what I should have had more of. And also I should have probably focused more on recovery as well. I kind of didn't take that too seriously. Mm -hmm. So that's my biggest regret. How do you focus on recovery? Do you have a certain amount of sleep that you like to get every night or are there, do you ice bath? What are any tricks that are things that have worked for you? Yeah, for me, it's giving up coffee completely. I used to drink a lot of coffee 
people who see me now, they kind of surprised when they don't see me with coffee in my hand because I would always drink coffee even pretty late. And I'm kind of like a all or nothing kind of guy. So for me, it wouldn't help to cut down on the coffee. So I instead just quit completely. And it, it has really helped my sleep a lot. So that is for me the biggest thing. I still drink some like caffeine free coffee once once in a while, but yeah, that has helped me a lot. Do you use caffeine at all? Like when you want to perform, if you want to go into a gym sesh, will you do like a Red Bull or something? Sometimes I'll do caffeine now when I really need it and it feels like cocaine. It's amazing when I do it now. Before it didn't affect me at all. The only thing it was, it, yeah, disrupted my sleep. But now I can actually use it as something positive when I really need it. Like if I have to work really, really late, if I have a deadline or something, or if I want to, if I have some project or if I want to get through a training session or something like that. So, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting to hear. I had a conversation on the show with Tommy Caldwell and he said something very similar that he essentially reserves caffeine for the few times that he really wants to perform. Otherwise he tries to lay off of it. Yeah. And I think similarly, it kind of like when you, if you're not using it and you take it, then it's going to give you that jolt. How often do you say you strategically use caffeine? Oh, maybe two times per month or something. Oh, wow. So very little. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Not much, but I do drink decaf coffee and I think there's like 20% of normal coffee in it. I do get a little bit of caffeine and yeah, sure. every morning. Yeah. Okay, great. I want to dive into more of this in the nutrition chapter yeah. next, because I've got some more questions on this and, and also, you know, other substances and, and uh, supplements and these kinds of things. But um, putting a, a little bit of a, uh, a bow on the training chapter here, you had this video that came out. It was from 8A plus to 6C. and talked about how you quit climbing for a bit. And I'm curious mm-hmm. what that experience taught you and what you discovered about yourself and your climbing through that. I forget the video 60 to 80 plus. I mean, I make so many videos that I kind of forget what was in that one. Well, uh, essentially, you know, you, you were talking about how, I mean, you've had these periods, as you've said, where either you've been too busy or you've maybe lost the psych on climbing, you've walked away and you've had to yeah. come back and I don't know if it's relearn oh, yeah. certain things, but yeah, like kind of what that experience is like where you're away from it for a while and then you come back. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I now remember it was uh, because I had some pain in my finger and so I tried to, to rest it off kind of, but, um, it didn't, didn't happen. I had that for a long time, but it didn't really bother me that much. But it's also when I'm like, I'm doing other things, maybe yeah, I'm just not so psyched for a while. And also my videos don't really rely on me being super strong at climbing. You know, it's, it's enough to climb at a like 8A to 8B bowler level. That's plenty for the videos that I'm making. It's not like I'm going out there trying the hardest bowlers in the world anyways. So yeah, for me, it's more, I think it's more just motivation. And when I take a longer break, I always enjoy getting back into climbing and I especially enjoy the first days of progression, but like if you haven't been to the gym in two weeks, you feel very bad the first session and then the next session already, you feel like a different person. So it's, it's a little bit of those like beginner gains that you kind of feel again, which is really hard when you reach a certain level, you don't really get 
you never really have progression. It doesn't feel like you have progression. Like for many years, I didn't feel like I had any progression. It was like up and down. I felt weak, uh, weak and then strong, weak and strong. Like, but I did never felt like I was going anywhere. So uh, it's nice now that I'm able to take a break and then, yeah, when I get back into climbing, I feel really rested and ready and. I also feel the sense of progression. Yeah. How, how important is that progression for you? I've been thinking about this for myself as well as I'm trying to push my grade up. And I've heard you in other interviews uh, mention that you've got a competitive spirit. You you've like to log things on 8a.nu and these kinds of things. Yeah. And is it is the progression what gets you excited about climbing or can it be enjoyed even if you aren't continuously improving? Yeah, I can still enjoy it. Definitely. If I feel strong on the wall, like it feels fluent, then I enjoy climbing no matter what. Like I can just fluff around at the climbing gym or go to a new crag and try to onsite a bunch of roots. That used to be my favorite thing to do. Like go to a new crag that I've never been before and try to onsite as many like 8A, 80 plus, 8B, 80 plus as possible. Uh, that is not like my favorite thing. Um, working a project for, for a long time, I never really enjoyed that much. Like I've had a lot of really long-term projects and it's really hard for the head. Um, but yeah, no tracking things. I've, I've always liked 8a.nu. And when I started climbing, you were not supposed to say that you enjoyed 8a.nu because everyone kind of looked down upon that. Like climbing was supposed to not be about numbers and stuff. It was only supposed to be for yourself and it was. Right. So I kind of kept it to myself, but I really, that for me was like a big part of the motivation to see like my scorecard growing. And also every time I did something hard, I would move up the list, the ranking. Yeah. So for me, that was really enjoyable, but now I don't really have that anymore. Um, so uh, yeah, right now I don't, I guess that's the struggle right now to find that motivation to, to push it and get stronger. I do still like, I do have some goals that I still feel like I could achieve even now or later and that is to do like an 8c bowler i would like to do that still i B15? have only done 8b plus b15 yeah so i think that would be still cool and i should probably get to it i mean i still think i have 10 15 years left to do it so maybe a little bit optimistic but i think so so i'm not rushing it but it's something that i would like to do before i get too old oh, there's no doubt that you can do that. I yeah. mean, there's just no doubt you've got such strength and obviously technique and tactics come into play when we're talking about boulders of that caliber. I had a conversation with Emil about this not too long ago. In mm -hmm. fact, maybe that's a guy you could link up with. You guys could get out there and start ticking off yeah. the 15s. Yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> but I always, I always feel like right now it wouldn't be too much of a challenge. Obviously, I would have to really get myself to it for a long time. But it would also be cool to do it like when I'm 50 to do my first... 8C when I'm 50, you know, so I'm kind of saving that for a little bit later. I love it. Some people save on sites or flashes. You're saving the hardest boulder you'll ever do until you hit 50. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, that's going to be sick. <laughs> well, what do you think it'll take with regards to health, longevity, training in order to have that fitness and that strength at 50? And by the way, this is coming from somebody who's mm -hmm. in their mid 40s. So I'm staring it kind of right in the face here. Yeah. Well, I mean, definitely try to prevent injuries. I think it's a big thing. I mean, I had never been injured 
I've still never been injured, I feel like, but I do now occasionally feel some pain in my fingers. I have a little bit of pain in my shoulder. I don't really know what it is. So I hope that's not me getting older. I don't really know, but I don't know. I, I think it's staying motivated is the main thing. And also just like trying hard. That's, that's always the key. When you see like the best climbers, they're the ones who try the hardest. It's really that simple. So I think for me, that's going to be the key and to find something that I'm really excited about a project that I really want to do. I think that's just the main thing. So I don't, I don't know about you. I don't know your story. Like, did you get into climbing later in life or I did wish I you always climbed? wish I had started earlier. I didn't start climbing until I was 30 and it was trad mm-hmm. out West. So it was a lot of sub-maximal mileage routes out in Joshua Tree and Talk Eats and the Sierras. And so it wasn't until I moved to the Red River Gorge when I was 40, where I really started trying yeah. hard. And uh, But I'm progressing. I mean, I, I climbed my first 5'11 when I was 40, and I'm working on my first 13, 513A right now, so mm-hmm. 7C+. plus. I'm getting stronger and better, and I'm definitely seeing that progression, but I'm also feeling pressure. Oh, yeah, it's, it's like this balance between wanting to push myself hard and having a little bit of a fear of failure. yeah. yeah. Well, the Red River Gorge, that's an amazing place to live if you want to project hard routes, for sure. Yeah. And it's cool that uh, Chris Sharma, you were saying earlier that Chris Sharma is going there. He used to be like my big idol when I grew up. Him and David Graham, I had posters of on my wall. So that's pretty cool. Oh, man. Just, yeah, two absolute legends right there. Yeah, I'm curious because you obviously have had an incredibly successful career, comp, Sport, Boulder, you name it. Now on YouTube, just a dominating force there as well. But to sport climb up to 515B, especially at the time where you were one of only a few people in the world who had done that, you were in Chris Sharma territory. Obviously, there you, you all were peers. What, what did you learn from watching Chris Sharma climb and, and his style when he was coming up and really kind of revolutionary in a revolutionary way? What did you take yeah. away from the Sharma style? Yeah, no, for me, because the gym where I grew up, everyone had that kind of old fashioned climbing style where you climb really slow and static and everything was supposed to be controlled and you're supposed to have uh, three limbs on at all times. Right. So it was really refreshing to see someone just campus and just power his way through. And that was the motivation for me. Like when I developed my technique, I, I looked at Chris Sharma and I remember when I climbed like that in the gym, the older generation, they would tell me that I was doing things wrong. I mean, I didn't think so because I knew that Chris Sharma was the best climber in the world and he climbed like that. So, so it was, yeah, I know definitely like that type, like climbing in that powerful way is, that's something like he introduced to the climbing world. And that's, I think in many ways, I feel like if it wasn't for him and also a few others, I wouldn't have been climbing because yeah, climbing was just so cool back then. It's like surfing or skateboarding or something. So that was really cool. But I, but also, even though I was at a pretty high level, like like you said, I climbed 15B uh, like many years ago when I was so unsighted. I think that's probably what I'm more, more proud of is onsighting 8C+. Yeah. I think less people have done that in the world to this day than climbing 9B. Mm-hmm. But I was never like the best in the world. It's same, same in World Cups and stuff. I finished podium a couple of times, but I never won a World Cup. I never won the adult world championships. I was never like 
at the highest, at the very highest level, not like Adam Andre, Jakob Schubert, all those guys. But at the same time, I was satisfied. I, was, I wasn't really hungry, <laughs> to be honest. When I look back at it, no, I wasn't hungry for that. For me, the goal was, and it sounds stupid to say that, but I was just super satisfied. If I made finals in World Cup, whenever I made finals, I didn't always make finals. I was just super happy. And I think that maybe that was a problem. I was too content with what I was doing. I, yeah. When you look at someone like Adam, he's so hungry. Like he wants it so bad. I feel like I never really wanted it that bad. Let's talk about nutrition for a second. We did talk about coffee for just a minute there, but wh where else has nutrition been a struggle for you in your career as a climber? Well, when I started climbing, I was kind of a little bit chubby. I didn't care anything. Like I would, I was eating really unhealthy. And then when I started getting a little bit better, I realized that, oh, I have to do something about my nutrition. And I kind of took it a little bit too far. So when I was 16, I lost a lot of weight and I felt really weak at some point. I would say that it was, yes, I had some sort of eating disorder back then, but it was just like, I, in 2005, I became youth world champion. And then I looked at all the other climbers and they looked so much skinnier than me. So I felt like if I wanted to be adult world champion one day, I would have to lose weight and look more like they did. But when I look back at it now, I feel like I shouldn't just climb with the body that I have because, I mean, I obviously, I tried cutting weights and I cut off like 10 kilos. I weighed like 55 kilos at my lowest and I've never felt so weak in my life. And then, so I realized that, okay, this is not working and I gained a lot of weight and then I just felt super weak because my body wasn't adapting to the, to gaining weight. Like I had lost a lot of muscle and I was gaining weight in all weird places. So I kind of messed up my whole system or balance. And then, I mean, it got better after that. I realized that I couldn't function at a, at such a low weight, but I still like up until when I re retired, I kind of always had like a kind of weird relationship to food. I always felt like I should have. I should be a little bit skinnier. I should be a little bit skinnier. And I feel like a lot of my confidence would come from like what the number of the scale said. If I was, if I was skinny or if I would weighed, if I didn't weigh much, then I would think that I was strong, stronger, you know? Mm. So I had like this unhealthy way of looking at it. And then, yeah, when, after I retired in 2017, obviously I, I didn't care at all what I ate anymore and stuff, but. I've always gained, especially muscle pretty fast. I've always been kind of more built and most people would see that as a blessing, but I saw it as a curse when I grew up because I always felt like I had those like chunky calves and like I had like muscles that just weighed me down. Mm. But that is also another regret when I look at it now, because I think that trying to change your body too much is not going to work. And now, like, when I feel the strongest now, I'm actually at a higher weight than I used to be. So, but I think it's a problem in climbing. And this is something that's difficult to talk about. And that's why people don't talk about it. And that's why I'm in my YouTube videos and stuff. I never really talk about that stuff, which is kind of, I don't know. I, f I feel like at some point I would like to talk about, about it more, but I also don't want to focus too much on it because then a lot of kids might be watching and it's kind of this weird hard balance. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you sharing just your own personal experience there. I think just sharing that is helpful for people who are out there who may be struggling with something similar or 
who may be tempted to want to try to improve by cutting past the point that it's healthy. So it's a really, yeah. it's a very personal subject, but also a very nuanced subject. It's individual in that mm -hmm. I'm a dad in his mid forties and I drink some beer and eat some donuts. And yeah, when it comes time for send season in a healthy way, I could cut a few pounds and it'd probably help me. Whereas there are other people out there who have already maybe restricted or are underfueled to the point where cutting doesn't help. Yeah. So it's a really, to your point, it's a very touchy subject. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm curious yeah. now what your nutrition looks like, what your diet looks like. Are, are you, do you prescribe to any sort of specific kind of rules or guardrails that you try to stick to with your fueling? And are there certain things that you like to eat or supplements you like to take in order to help you perform or when you're going through a training phase and that kind of thing? I mean, I do like also how it started, like when I cut weight, I started with just trying to eat healthy and then that when that didn't work anymore, I would start also skipping meals and stuff, eating less, right. like less volume. And I think that is the unhealthy part, staying away from like candy and sugar and all that stuff. I think that's okay to a certain point at least, but when you're starting like actually starving yourself, I think that's when it becomes a real problem. So now, like after I retired, I just ate a lot and I felt like I was kind of trying to compensate for everything I hadn't been eating. So I was eating a lot of junk. And even when I competed, I used to eat a lot of sugar and stuff. For me, it was just, I tried to stay away from like, I just, I, I never wanted to be completely full. I always wanted to feel a little bit hungry. So like I would have a, a chocolate bar or something instead of a meal, or I would eat a piece of, I mean, a, a piece of cake or something instead of a proper meal, which was, I think, very unhealthy when I look back at it now. So a year or two years from uh, ago, I actually tried to cut down on sugar. Uh, so added sugar, so I still eat fruits and everything, but, and that has really helped me a lot. I feel like I have less inflammation in my body and all. It just, I feel healthier and I also sleep better. I'm not like super strict if I go to a birthday party or I will eat sugar occasionally, but I try to avoid it a little bit more than I used to. Oh my God. I love sugar so much. This is terrible news. Yeah, me too. I used to love it. So I, the way I, like for me, I tried to cut down sugar before and it never worked. Like I felt like my body was just craving it. So for me, it was like changing it with something else. So I would still, I, I want to get the same amount of calories. So I would eat a lot of fatty stuff, like nuts and just get a lot of calories. Sure. And, and then my body wouldn't crave it so much anymore. I eat like butter, and like milk. Yeah. So, so, but you're not replacing it with other sweet things like dried fruits or something like no. that. It's you're replacing it with calories, but more on the yeah. fatty side. Interesting. Yeah, exactly. And it just took a while, I think, for my body to get adapted to that. And yeah. yeah, that's fascinating. I, I, but now I don't really crave it anymore. And I used to, like, you can ask any of my friends, I used to eat a lot of sugar. Like I could, like pastries, chocolate, ice cream, all that stuff. I could eat like a liter of ice cream for dessert, like no problem. So, um, yeah. Speaking my language. I love, I used to love dessert. Yeah. yeah. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that. I think that's going to be very helpful for a lot of people who are listening. And I recently had a conversation with Dave McLeod where he said something very similar, where it's like, essentially, we have to train our bodies to not crave refined sugar. And it just takes a lot of time. You can't really cut back. You just yeah. have to essentially cut it out and then your body will stop craving it. But I haven't been able to get out of that yeah. craving phase yet. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, and it's not really so much for me. It's not about like losing weight or anything. It's just about feeling healthier. So and about like we talked about recovery and sleep and all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, kudos to you. I, I love it. I, I like that. There's less yeah. pressure that you're putting on yourself, but also even with that freedom where you could eat whatever the heck you want, you're choosing not mm -hmm. to, and and you're feeling better because of it. So well done. Yeah, and also something that I used to do back in the days while competing is uh, something called snooze. I don't know if you heard about it. No. No, it's uh, nicotine that you put under your lip. It's a little bit like chewing tobacco, oh, yeah. but it's Swedish. Yeah, they're like in those yeah. little packets. Yeah, yeah. So I used to do a lot of that. And that was really bad for recovery and sleep and all that stuff. But that also helped me stay lighter. Nicotine, yeah, makes you less hungry. So that was, yeah, since I tried to stay light, that really helped me. Hmm. But I did so much, like, uh, it felt like I was, I was drinking a lot of coffee and snooze. And that's like pretty much my fuel back then. And it was like really unhealthy. Oh my God. But when you're young and stuff, like your body functions, and I didn't really feel the effect, but now as I got older and I can feel the negative effect that snooze has on the body, I'm like, I should have realized that earlier and I could have been so much better. I could, I could have recovered so much more. I could have trained so much harder. Yeah, there's so much stuff that I wish I knew. Yeah, I imagine that leads to a lot of anxiety and just like, just being strung out. I mean, talking caffeine and nicotine and then not, a yeah. lot of good quality food. You're right. Yeah. When you're younger, you can kind of get away with it, but that shit will catch up with you. Yeah. And not a lot of sleep either. All right, y'all. Just a quick breather here to tell you about a new sponsor at The Struggle and one that I'm super psyched on because it fits very well with this episode. And that is Rungni, which of course is Magnus's brand. I've been using their chalk, Magdust, for the past month now, and it is awesome stuff. Whether I'm outside on my project or keeping my power tuned up on the moon board or the set problems at my gym, Magdust feels fantastic and it has been working great for me. There's like this perennially wet hold at the start of the low crux on my outdoor project and I've been able to move off of that hold without rechalking until I get to the next rest and that has been huge. So I'm loving it. As are a ton of pros, it's on a bunch of best lists of chalk, and it's really affordable. You can score a bundle to keep your chalk bag full for an entire season, and it's not going to break the bank. Plus, right now, you can hit the link in your show notes for a chance to win a year supply of Magdust, plus other cool discounts and prizes. So rad. It's all over at rungni.com. Hit that link in your show notes and check it out. And this episode is also sponsored by patrons and subscribers of the show. For about the price of a beer each month, y'all, you're going to get all sorts of perks, including more than 30 hours of exclusive content with the likes of Chris Sharma, Alex Honnold, Nina Williams, Allison Vest, Ravioli Biceps, Tom Randall, Sasha DeJulian, and of course, today's guest, Mr. Magnus Mitbo. Plus, that support is what helps me to keep putting together thoughtful interviews with banger guests like the one you're currently listening to. So if you'd be willing to buy me a beer pop on over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show and check things out. You can also subscribe right in your Apple podcast player if that's where you listen. You can cancel anytime and there's also a free trial going on right now. So there's just like zero risk for checking it out. If you hate it, just quit and you won't be charged. All right, let's get back to this interview. Let's take that and shift us into kind of this tactics chapter here. And there's a kind of a big, rich territory here. I got a couple of things that I'd like to talk about, but I'll open it up first and just ask you through the lens of tactics as a climber, mm. where have you struggled? Well, I have always struggled in, in competitions. I always got very nervous. Mm. That's something I've struggled with. I've also struggled with consistency. Like even 
back, like way back, I, I would always, like I would have one good week where I would be really consistent and really dedicated. But then the next week I would be slacking. Yeah, for me, being consistent over a long period of time has always been difficult for me. Yeah. Because I'm kind of impatient and restless and I like to do different things. So having like a strict plan and pattern and feeling like every day is very similar is very hard for me. Like the routine is hard for me. How did you address that? Did you work with a coach or write your own plans? How did you try to build that discipline and consistency into your day? Yeah, I tried to work. I, I tried to have a plan, a training plan, but it never, that never really worked for me because I felt like I was just a slave to that plan. And I never felt like I would have the same quality on those, on the plan. And, and also it's so hard anyways, because if I had a plan and then I felt like my, I was too tired, then I would just change the plan. So I would change the plan too much anyways. So even though you have right. a plan, you will change it and adapt it to how you feel. Oh man, I can relate to that. I think a lot of people can relate to that as well. Yeah. But you're also a very driven person and obviously trained and performed at the highest level. I'd like to ask about this climbing course that you come out with recently, the Bouldering Blueprint. And that's geared primarily towards like beginner to intermediate climbers, which yeah. I would consider myself and a lot of the people tuning in here are as well. Mm -hmm. And in creating that course and and now having people uh, participate in it, what are some of the biggest learnings or the biggest takeaways with regard to improving as a boulderer, whether you're in a gym or, or outside? Well, first of all, it was pretty difficult for me, you know, because uh, so many things I just take for granted. I think when you climb for a very long time, a lot of the best climbers don't make the best coaches. And that's something that I was very well aware of. But in the course, we had a lot of beginners come in and I coached them through the sessions. And we had like different, all different body types and different ages and everything. So, but the biggest takeaway, I don't know, there, there are so many things, there's just so many different techniques and things that you take for granted that and also how different everyone is. Mm. There were a lot of things, even though they were all kind of at the same level, they were all struggling with different things, which was kind of unexpected. It kind of forced yeah. you to get back to basics, right? These things, as you said, you, you took a lot of this stuff for granted. When you were looking at these climbers that were coming in, was it a training gap that needed to be brought up? Oh, you need stronger fingers. Was it technique? You need to learn how mm -hmm. to get your hips different or flag or these kinds of things. Uh, if there were any common themes, what do you see when it comes to trying to level up as a boulderer, um, especially in those yeah. kind of maybe V0 to V5 grades? Yeah, I mean, most of them had the strength they needed, but I think the main thing was confidence. They didn't feel confident enough. They thought they weren't strong enough. Like a lot of, or yeah, a lot of the people in the course, they tried the hardest grade they had ever tried, and they actually did it in the course. Huh when we like filmed for the course, they hadn't even tried that grade before. That's how like, <laughs> I mean, so just like the confidence part, I think that's like probably the most important thing. Wow. They feel like they shouldn't, like they feel like they're not strong enough and they also feel like they shouldn't try something that is too hard for them. Like if they need a lot of attempts, so they don't really know. And also how muscle memory works. Like you, like this, when you project the root, it feels impossible the first time. And then 
if you just try it a bunch of times and you come back, it will feel eventually will feel easy. And I think when you come in as a beginner, you just like try a bowler and oh no, I can't do this bowler. And then you move on to the next bowler. And no, I can't do this bowler. Right. And then so on. But instead trying to break down each bowler into sections and work on the different parts and then get tired on the different roofs and take a rest day, come back and feel how the body will just adapt to the moves. I think that's something, it's not unique about climbing, but in other sports are more repetitive. You have one movement, but in climbing, there's always something new. So when you try a new move, it's essentially like, is you doing that move for the very first time? And so it's, um, if you haven't discovered like how muscle memory works, I think it's, it's going to blow your mind. God, I can really relate to this Magnus because for whatever reason, I'll, I'll work a project outside at the red for months. And I don't know, mm -hmm. cause I'm on rock and I'm on a rope. It just kind of feels different, but I'll go into the gym and I'll get on a V4, you know, set problem at my gym. And like, if I don't send it in the first couple of tries, I'm like, well, that's too hard for me or my <laughs> fingers aren't strong enough. And I think one of the things climbers often default to is I'm not strong enough for this thing. And what an interesting mm -hmm. observation that you were able to make in working with these beginner and intermediate climbers where you're saying by and large, they were all strong enough. It wasn't strength, wasn't the limiting factor. No. And if it was, it would have been finger strength. And I think that's another thing. A lot of people will avoid like hangboards and stuff, the beast maker. But I do think that you can start doing the beast maker earlier than you think. You just have to increase the hang time. So no, in my videos, I usually talked about like I do three second hangs or five second hangs on something really small. But when you're starting out, you should hang somewhere where you can hang for like 20 seconds and then you gradually go down. And it's actually a safer way of it improving finger strength, building up that finger strength than to try a hard dead point move on some sketchy bowler. I mean, that's usually how people get injured. Um, so you can really control it on a fingerboard. So that's also something that surprised a lot of the people we had in the course, uh, how early you can actually start with uh, training on a fingerboard. Yeah, that's great advice. I really appreciate that. You know, one other thing that you mentioned about those climbers, and I've seen you talk about this for yourself as well, is the impact, the boost that one gets when they're being watched or being filmed. And you've talked about how yeah. sometimes, you know, you can't do a boulder and the camera turns on and all of a sudden you're sending it. I'm curious about yeah. that effect. Yeah, no, it's strange. I mean, for me too, like I try a boulder many times and then, okay, I'm going to film this boulder later. And then when I come back to film it, I do it easily. And I'm always so surprised, but now I kind of know how that works. So now I'm not so surprised anymore, but in the beginning that's it's, and I feel like that is also part of the reason why I still get stronger is because now I fail a lot in the gym. So I try harder than I used to, because you always try harder when there's a camera rolling. And I think that's an advice, advice for people to, to film themselves, to see also how they look like, because it's, it's really hard to tell how you look like without filming yourself. Yeah. There's this video that you did. I think it was actually the, um, from. 8A plus to 6C video where there was a set problem. It was these big orange volumes and you had to do these, mm -hmm. like there's a crazy like downward dyno and all of this and, and you mm -hmm. sent it and it looked really hard, but you were surprised that it went down and that it went down as quickly as it did. And yeah. was that the camera being on or was it that you had tried it a few times and there's some muscle memory? 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of both. And obviously I've rested to, to make sure that I would have a fair chance of doing it. But I do think it's a combination of a lot of things. But that bowler, like even the first moves, I could hardly, I, I don't think I did it the first session I tried them. So I felt like, oh, this is impossible. And then I just came back, tried it many times. And then I felt strong enough to fail. And then, yeah, it went easily. And then people don't really get to see the struggle, which I always try to include the struggle. But for some reason, when I film for my videos, it's, it just makes it so much easier. You need the filming, so, um, the pre-filming yeah. before the filming. You need to film all the stages so we can get that struggle. We love exactly. struggle over here. Well, th that brings yeah. up maybe one last question in, in this chapter here, and that's this concept of climbing with people who are stronger climbers than you. What do, what do you mm -hmm. say to that when you're talking to people who are uh, looking to progress in the grades? Yeah, I think that's the most most important thing is to to climb with someone who is stronger than yourself. That's the quickest way of improving. But it's also, uh, it kind of makes you a douchebag when you have to change friends every month, you know? Um, <laughs> so you should probably be a little bit careful with that. Right. Um, yeah. Climbing with someone who's better. And that's also, also, it's always been my strategy. You know, when I grew up in Bergen in Norway, there were not really any strong climbers there. Or I quickly became the strongest climber. And I immediately knew that I would have to go travel so I traveled to Innsbruck to train with the best at that time. But before I could train with the best, because I do, I did travel to Innsbruck before I actually like started doing well in competitions and stuff. And then I could still climb at the gym, but I wasn't really part of the group. So you kind of have to prove yourself, or at least it was like that back then. Like I started winning some European youth cups and stuff. And then I became friends with like Jakob Schubert, uh, the, yeah, a lot, a lot of the strongest, David Lama, a lot of the strongest kids back then, York for Holland. And then I could like train with them. I went to Innsbruck and I even stayed at their house and stuff. So uh, that's always been my mentality that to train with people who are stronger than myself. I don't do it really anymore, but that's because I've kind of lost the ambitions that I used to have. And now I'm kind of just maintaining anyways, like I talked about earlier. But yeah, for people listening who want to get stronger, I think that's the, it's just the easiest way and not be afraid of failing. Because I think that if you climb with someone who's worse than yourself, it's so much more comfortable because you can just cruise around and you'll feel really strong, but you have to, I mean, it's a cliche to say it, but you have to move outside that comfort zone and climb with someone who's better than yourself in order to improve. And do you think it's because you are learning more advanced techniques from watching those better climbers or you're motivated to just try harder. Yeah, a lot of things, all that. And also just to see that something is possible. If you're at the gym or outside and you try a bowler and then someone comes up and does the bowler, then you're like, oh, wow, it is actually possible. It's just me not trying hard enough and not being strong enough. Or like, I think that's also a big part of it. And for me, it was also just to see how they trained, like how, yeah what kind of training they were doing and how much and all that stuff. I know, yeah, I don't know. It's also the mo motivation, you know, if you, the better the climbers you hang out with, usually the more they talk about climbing. So everything, like when you get to a certain level, everything you talk about is climbing. And that also helps, of course. Mental game really is this umbrella throughout everything that we've talked about up to this point, but specifically looking at 
mindset. Where have you struggled in that area? Well, I've struggled in competitions. I always struggled to not get too nervous. I was always, I always got really nervous. And I remember before going out, before every round, I would ask myself, why the hell am I doing this? And then after climbing, I would forget everything. And yeah, I would just have a lot of adrenaline and would feel really good. And I would forget everything about that. But I, yeah, I think I got a little bit too nervous. I took it a little bit too seriously. I wish I could just kind of relax a little bit more. And I think that would have helped me a lot. Is that a, so is that, could that kind of be distilled as a fear of failure? Yeah, definitely. And I have that in all parts of my life. I'm very negative usually. Like I, on yourself. when I look at a boulder, I would, on myself, yeah. I, if I look at a boulder, I would be like, I, there's no chance I can do this. Mm. But then I can actually do it. Like, and it, not only climbing, but also in other aspects of life. Everyone else is so positive always, and I'm always negative. Also, when it comes to business and stuff, I'm like, this is never going to work, or this is never. And there's some good, I mean, being realistic, and also when you're in a team, you need someone who's a little bit more like that. But uh, overall, I wish I could be a little bit more optimistic and just positive. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. I think that there is a protection mechanism in being a little bit conservative or negative, kind of on the pessimistic side, but it can also hinder fun. And if yeah. for a lot of the people, almost everyone, in fact, who's watching right now, they're in it for fun. If they're climbing for fun because they're not paying bills as rock climbers, which very few people are able to do, yeah. then there's a healthy balance of pushing oneself to try to achieve greatness or kind of that perfectionist element, a little bit of a fear of failure that can come in there. But then it, you can take it a little bit too far. And so has that... How do you look at the concept of fun when it comes to climbing? Is it fun? Yeah, for, for I don't know. It's a, it's a weird word. I mean, defining fun is, um, I would no, I wouldn't say now I have fun climbing, but before when climbing was my job, I wouldn't define it as fun, really. It, it gave me a lot and it felt fulfilling in a way. I felt like I, I achieved something, but Fun is probably not the word to describe it, really. But I wish it was more fun. I think it'd be better for me if it was more fun. To keep it fun, it's the same with work, with everything. If you can keep it fun, I think you're going to yeah, be better at it, no matter what it is. And yeah, I mean, I try to keep things fun now as well. Because I feel like it's a little bit similar. YouTube started off as something fun, and now it's kind of more, it's bigger now, you know? Yeah, careful, careful what you wish for when your hobbies become your job because it brings in a lot of other elements of needing to perform and excel and get things right and this kind of thing. Do, yeah. do you implement any mental kind of mindfulness type tactics to help you bring a little more positivity in? Whether it's you're about to get on a climb and, and you're pressuring yourself and you want to try to alleviate some of that pressure or just in your life in general to kind of put the racing mind a little bit at ease? Yeah, no, I've never really been able to deal with that. Yeah, I've tried with like mental coaches and stuff, but it's never really worked for me. I think it's because uh, I think for it to work, you have to believe in it. And I was always very skeptical. Right. So I was never, yeah, never really worked for me. But no, I don't, I never really found the balance when it comes to that stuff. So, and I'm always really hard on myself too. Like I'm never really satisfied. I'm a perfectionist, which is good, but it can also be exhausting it yeah sometimes to never feel satisfied with stuff so but not when it comes to everything in life but 
it used to be like that in climbing and now I'm like that and other stuff as well. But yeah. What do you do just to relax when you're not on a deadline for a YouTube video, when you're not needing to perform on camera? Like what, how do you unwind? Hmm. I usually go on hikes. I mean, there's a lot of nature and stuff around. So I go on hikes and then I also like to climb sometimes just alone without music or anything, not talking to anyone and just kind of zoning out and climbing. That is yeah, really relaxing for me, but I don't really, I don't have that many hobbies or anything. So yeah, I used to play a lot of PlayStation when I was a professional climber actually, because that was my way of kind of my escape, but. I don't do that. I don't have time for that anymore. Yeah. And it's also kind of like when you're doing a lot of editing and a lot of digital work, you don't want to be looking at a TV screen, playing computer games. You kind of want to just, yeah, go on hikes or be outside. Yeah. I hear you. I think only recently I've got an eight-year-old son who's now gotten into video games. And so it's been a long time since I played video games, like back to my college years. Yeah. But now all of a sudden I'm sitting yeah. down and I'm playing like old school Super Mario Brothers and these kinds of things with them. And yeah. It's actually a pretty good time, but I don't really have time for it, yeah. but it is fun. A good, the, the occasional computer game or video game is a good time. Well, when you do it with someone, I think it's, it's, it's good. And especially when you deal with it, with your kid. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, we're connecting over something, which is fun. Well, cool, man. I, I love this. I'm, I'm just having a blast here. Let's keep moving. I want to talk. There's a lot to talk about still, but let's focus on things that you're passionate about outside of climbing. The obvious mm -hmm. bucket here is YouTube, but you also have these various businesses, your brand, gyms that you're involved in. I'm going to have mm -hmm. to ask you first, because I'm just going to, I'm so aware of my American accent that every time I try to say Rugney, it comes out yeah. way different than what you would <laughs> say. So how should I pronounce it? <laughs> No, there's a lot of ways to say it. Rogni is fine. Okay. I say Rogna, which is the way uh, you would say in Norwegian. Rogna. Rogna. Uh, Rogna. But yeah. It's kind of in the Rogna. back of the throat. Yeah. Rogna. Yeah, but that's also my Norwegian dialect. So it's, I mean, people could say it however they want to say it. All right, great. Well, we've got uh, that. Um, we've got gyms, we've got YouTube. And, you know, I mean, maybe we should just start with YouTube because, yeah. gosh, I think, I mean, you're at, the time of this recording here, just under 2 million subscribers. By the time this comes out, you'll be have blown past that incredible benchmark. So first of all, congratulations. Mm -hmm. How does that, the success that you've attained as a YouTuber match up to the expectation or the dream that you had, even just looking back a couple of years? Well, when I, when I like started, it was a really hard start, to be honest. I did YouTube for like two years without it working out at all, really. Two full years? So uh, I think it was two, two full years, or at least one full year. Wow, um, and you stuck with it. Because that was also back when, yeah, back when YouTube was a lot smaller than it is now. But I, I just really enjoyed the process. Like, it, it was the same for me as when I started climbing. You know, when I started climbing, I didn't even know that it was possible to be professional at it. I, I wasn't aware that you could be sponsored and make a living off of it. And that's not why, why I started. I just knew that I really love climbing and I wanted to do as, as, as much as possible. And that is kind of the same thing with YouTube. I never in a million years thought I would make a lot of money from YouTube enough to make a living. So that's not why I started it. I actually enjoyed sharing stuff and, 
editing in the beginning with iMove. Like that's how I started. I, yeah, I just enjoyed the whole process of, of sharing stuff. And I mean, it all started on Instagram. I was pretty big on Instagram before I started YouTube. Yeah. I had a hundred thousand, I think, on Instagram when I started YouTube. And I thought it would be easy to get them over to YouTube, but that was really difficult. Mm. Like there's just two different formats that, uh, yeah, it's easy the other way around. Getting people from YouTube to Instagram is easy, but not from Instagram to YouTube is really hard. So you put in, obviously it was an enjoyable process, but you, there was something there that you thought, okay, this, there's a path here. There's an avenue here. And what was it? Was there a, a moment that you can look back and say, oh, that's when Magmit, the YouTuber, really clicked into high gear? Or was it kind of a slow build? No, it was definitely like that. Like I used, I kind of, I almost quit YouTube two times, I think. Mm. But then I got a message from Tom Boyd, who is filming for Juji Mufu, yeah. who's a bodybuilder in the US. And they had reached out to a couple of climbers already and they didn't respond, but they wanted to pay for my flights over to the US and they wanted to make a bunch of videos because they had just made a video where they did some grip strength stuff and that went viral. So they wanted to do another one with me because I'm a professional climber. They thought that could potentially do even better. So I went over there, we made, I think seven or eight videos for their channel and three videos for my channel in three days. Wow. Uh, and that was crazy. I, we didn't sleep at all. We just made videos. So I was just in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, three days. And then I flew back. Yeah. So I had, I think 40,000 subscribers when I went there. And then after they started releasing their videos, I went from 40 to 110, I think in a week wow. or something. Like it was crazy and that was like pretty much overnight. And that is like when I could actually start making a living off of YouTube. So yeah, it went from 40,000 subscribers, hardly making anything to a hundred thousand plus where I could actually start making money and doing this full time. So that was just a coincidence. I mean, if it wasn't for them, I might have quit YouTube and just decided that this is never going to work out. And not only did I get a lot of subscribers from them who watched their video of me, but I, I also learned a lot from them in the way they were thinking about thumbnails and titles and what a lot of people who don't do YouTube would call clickbaits, but there's, yeah, there's a certain amount of clickbait that you have to do in order to grow. So just finding that balance, they kind of helped me. It was after meeting up with them, I realized that, okay, you first have to find a thumbnail and title, and then you spin the video around that. You, I always started the opposite way. I was like, okay, I'll just make the video. And then afterwards I would spend like 10 minutes figuring out what the thumbnail and right. title was going to be. So I definitely learned a lot from them. Yeah. Well, and since then also, I mean, that opened up a lot of other opportunities as well. Like I could collab with bigger creators and yeah, it's just easy, pretty much easy from there. Well, the logical, not easy, the logical follow-up yeah. question for me here is to ask if you will collaborate with me on a video. <laughs> that sounds like, sounds like that's the way to do it. Yeah. Or maybe I'll hit Gigi. That is definitely the way to do it. <laughs> yeah. No, if, if you want to become a YouTuber, that's like to be in someone else's video is really good. All right, I'm gonna figure out um, what my stupid human trick is. I'm gonna figure out what I can do that you can't do. And I'm gonna come out to Oslo. I can ride a unicycle. Yeah. Can you ride a unicycle? Okay, yes, great. No. I'm gonna build something around a unicycle challenge. We'll figure it out. Uh, 
I, I've got a a patron. I got a, a bunch of patron questions. I, I won't be able to get to all of them, but yeah. Glenn wrote in and he's just said, "Is Magnus aware of how many people he got into climbing?" I feel like gyms should be paying him royalties. I love you, Magnus. <laughs> and I think, are you aware? Do you hear from people? I mean, you've really brought the sport of climbing and, and the joy that climbing brings to millions of people. Yeah, I mean, I do hear that because that's one of the most common comments that I get onto my videos. And also when I meet people, that's usually what they say is that you got me into climbing. Mm. And that is, of course, a huge compliment. I know that even on some gyms, when you fill in the waiver, they ask you like, what made you come here or something. And then it's like, I heard it from a friend. I saw it on Google ads. And then I watched my YouTube video. It's like one of the things that you can take that's off. That's great. So that is, that's a compliment. But yeah, no, so, and I think that's what my videos are targeting, the more beginners. Anyways, I try to, yeah, the bigger I've grown, the more like, yeah, the, more basic my videos have become, I guess. Accessible, I would say, it's, you know, like you, yeah. I mean, they're not all niche climbing content. You've got these incredible challenges that you do with Navy SEALs and like elite operations, military personnel, and then of course, grip strength and feats of strength and the juji, like you mentioned. So it's accessible to a wide audience, but ultimately I think introduces climbing to a lot of people, which is a really beautiful and wonderful thing. Yeah. And, and I'm assuming although maybe um, it's an incorrect assumption, but in your success as a YouTuber, is that what's allowed you to be able to now start gyms and start a brand and these kinds of things? Has, has that all sprung from this well of YouTube? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I did invest in my first climbing gym the same year I started YouTube. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the same because we were starting the climbing gym and I just I kind of wanted to document the process too of starting a climbing gym. So that's why I started YouTube, but then I've been able to invest in several more gyms after that. And that's all because of YouTube. Yeah. And we have a lot of visitors in my gym and also the one I started the, my first gym. We have a lot of visitors from all around the world who come to, to just to climb in that gym. Um, so that is pretty cool. Sure. Definitely. So everything I do has pretty much sprung from YouTube. That's so wonderful. Well, congratulations again. Yeah. I mean, it, it was like a year ago you were at a million subs. Now you're at two million subs. Yeah. It seems like yeah. the exponential growth is continuing, though I've heard you in some interviews say that, you know, maybe there's a shelf life on this. Maybe you won't do it for forever and this kind of thing. How often do you think about what the future of your YouTube empire is going to look like? And what is the dream? Yeah, no, I, uh, I don't know. I uh, usually channels will die out eventually. And that doesn't mean that people will unsubscribe. We will still have the same amount of subscribers, but you will see every video gets less views until the point where every video gets like, yeah, no views at all, pretty much. So I feel like eventually that's going to happen to my channel, but I'm trying my hardest to prevent that from happening to kind of continue the growth. So from the beginning, I've just, I've been very aware that, okay, you start with a niche, my niche is climbing. And then as you grow, you try to do other things that attracts a larger audience. So right now, that's why I started doing the military videos. I like, I was super skeptical. The first military video I considered doing, I was like, am I destroying my brand here? Am I doing something completely wrong? And the worst part was like after uploading it, 
I had the worst views. I don't know if you know, on YouTube, you get ranked like the last 10 videos. So it's like a one out of 10 or it's a 10 out of 10, 10 out of 10 is the worst. Right. And the video when I uploaded, it was a 10 out of 10 it was the worst video. And I was even considering deleting it, but I've kind of, because the, I was, I mean, I was doing it with the military. I couldn't delete it because they had put all this time and effort into making a video with me. But then like how the YouTube algorithm works is that it will first push it out to you, your subscribers. And my subscribers weren't really interested in the military stuff, so they wouldn't watch it. But then after a week or after five days, YouTube would slowly start pushing it out to, to people more based on the tags and on the title and the description. Right. And then it would just blow up. So the week after it would be a one out of one, it would be a huge hit. So I think not being afraid to try new things, that has also been the key and is still going to be the key for me to keep on growing, to branch out to different things. But yeah, my, I mean, my main thing will, will always be climbing. Of course, that's pretty much the only thing that I'm good at. So that's the only thing I can really do in my videos. No, I, and I also do like trying different things. I used to only talk about climbing, only do climbing. Climbing would be everything, but at this stage in my life, I also enjoy other things and I don't know, just do, yeah, other sports and other activities. Yeah, well. well, I'm glad you are. And I know there's a little kind of self-deprecation in, in your voice there when you say it's the only thing I'm good at is climbing because that's obviously not mm -hmm. true. A, you're a very talented filmmaker. And I think a lot of people who maybe watch your videos don't quite understand. I've got a background in film production. So like, I, I certainly see what's mm -hmm. in there. The everything is made in post-production. Everything is the edit. Yeah. Everything is the music. Everything is the pacing mm -hmm. and the cuts and not having one second of dead air and these kinds of things. And your videos yeah. are so good. They're so tight. They're so well edited that you're an incredibly talented storyteller. And you're also an incredibly talented host. And this is something that I've done for quite some time myself as well, but yeah. you're a very curious and thoughtful interviewer. So I'm not blowing smoke here. Like I think that you could, you don't, you could do a baking show and I think it would be incredibly well done. Yeah. yeah thank you. Yeah, no, I do. I do put, and that's also just me having put a lot of effort into my videos, like always been a perfectionist. And it is like you say, I try to tell people that it's almost, it's all in the editing because when you're doing YouTube, you don't really have a script. It's not like a list of different shots you want. So everything is done in post. So you're kind of the director and editor, and you have a lot of roles as the editor and on YouTube, more so than when you shoot a movie, you have a director and you have a plan So you just, as, as a, when you're editing, you follow that plan. But when you edit the YouTube video, you can do whatever you want. It's only about, this is the footage you have, try to make the best out of it. Yeah. So if you have to do a voiceover, like do anything you can, but you have to make this work. So that is, yeah, that's, that's where the magic is. And when it comes to YouTube, definitely. Yeah, man. Well, there's so much magic in there. I'm psyched for all you have going on there. I had another patron who, who wrote in Mike Wisteria said, I'm curious what Magnus's favorite route that he's ever climbed has been, whether that was a comp, a gym or outdoors. Also, I love the products his company makes best shirt and chalk ever. So. Shout out for you on, on the quality of the stuff that you're making there. Does a route come to mind? Favorite route ever? I don't know. Most people say like a really hard route. And I probably would say that too, because it's something you struggled on for a while. I think Thor's hammer in Zoftanger is really nice. Yeah. It's the last hard route I did kind of, I don't know. It's 9A, 9A plus. Some people call them 9A. 
I, I think I call it 9A as well. But it's also a route that I bolted myself. I bolted it before Flatanger became popular. And it's actually the first route that got added Mondra to go to Flatanger. Like I, people had discovered Flatanger, but only the side of the cave because they thought that the, the main part of the cave was too steep. So I remember after the Norwegian championships, like people told us about it and we went on a bolting trip. We bolted like the main cave and we started trying a little bit and the same, or the summer after I talked to Adam about it and he sent me a message and he asked me if he could come and try Thor's hammer. So he went up there, tried Thor's hammer, he did it. And then that's when he discovered how good Flatanger is and he came back year after year. And yeah, obviously everyone knows the story after that. So he did silence and yeah, all the hard moves he've done there. So yeah, I mean, it's, well, it's kind of cool. It's, it's a cool place. Yeah, that now hosts kind of the collection of the most cutting edge, hardest sport routes in the world there. Obviously, Jakob was just out there doing big yeah. silence you mentioned. So yeah, I'm curious. First of all, I didn't know that. So thank you for sharing that. What no, a, cool a lot story. of people, it is cool because a lot of people ask me, have you been to Flatanger? <laughs> like I've been there so much. Like I bolted the, the first lines in there, in the main part of the cave. So, but I, I mean, I understand that people don't understand because I, like I don't show that anywhere. I don't talk about it really. Only when I do podcasts and stuff. Do you still get psyched on that kind of climbing? Would you want to go out there and check out some of the new lines that have been put up since you were last there? Yeah, I would really like to visit Flatiron again. The problem is that I would probably have to do it without filming anything for YouTube. Mm. Because projecting is the least YouTube-friendly thing you can do. On YouTube, people get, they get tired of something. If they watch one video of you trying something, they're not interested to see you sending it. Or at least it's like that on my channel. They feel like that if they've seen you try that route, that's enough for right. them. So if I made some YouTube video, it would have to be of all the different attempts up until the send. And that is so much work for one video. You know, on YouTube, you have to spit out a video every week, basically. So to put in so much effort and also being there projecting for so long, it would definitely like, it would be something that I would want to do, but it would be a passion project. It would not be good for YouTube at all. But it was something, it would be a video that would be worth a lot to me personally, though. Yeah. Oh, man. I would watch the yeah. shit out of that video, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, Magnus, this has just been such a pleasure, man. I'm so psyched for all that we covered here, and I can't wait for the community to hear this. I want to express gratitude on behalf of everybody that's a part of the community for what you've done to get people psyched on climbing, to make the sport more accessible, and also just kind of the hard work. You've been this unofficial slash official ambassador <laughs> for the community and for us all for many years. And we really appreciate it, man. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. I listen to the podcast when I'm in the car. So, so you provided me a lot of entertainment over the years. Well, thank you. I'm so grateful. I'll keep hustling and yeah. you do the same. And I'd love to do this again. I'm going to get my unicycle. I'm going to get on an airplane and fly out to Oslo one of these days. <laughs> yeah. And that wraps up an honest, surprising, and super insightful chat with one of the biggest names in the sport, Magnus Mitbo. I hope you all enjoyed it. And if you want to hear more, which you, you really do want to hear more here, let me tell you about it. I just released a 30-minute bonus episode where Magnus shares some never-before-heard stories from his infamous free solo with Alex Honnold. Crazy stuff there. And also, did you know this? That wasn't the first time that Alex and Magnus free soloed together. I had no idea. Magnus shares a story of a much harder route, a much, much, much harder route 
for which one of them ended up not feeling comfortable trying it in the end, and one of them did. That's all in the bonus episode. Magnus also explores Adamandra's strengths and weaknesses, including a surprising perspective on his finger strength and what really makes Adam the best climber in the world. And then we also explore key takeaways from some of his biggest videos that he's done, including how we can all live longer and improve our grip strength well into our 70s and why those two things actually might be connected. Pretty cool stuff. Now, in prior episodes, I was including all the bonus stuff at the end of these regular episodes and kind of creating it as an extended episode. But after getting some nice feedback from patrons who thought that it would be easier to access that bonus content as a separate episode, I've listened and we're going to try that for a while now. So if you are a patron or Apple subscriber, you're going to see that bonus episode in your feed right now. Also, for patrons and subscribers, you got access to the full uncut video of this conversation with Magnus, so you can watch what you just heard, plus get a little extra content in that as well. Now, if you're not a patron or a subscriber, it's pretty dang easy to check it out totally for free right now. Just pop over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show, and in a few clicks, you will be in. Or if you're an iPhone person like I am, your free trial is waiting for you right now, just one click away in your podcast player. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. We're building a pretty stoked community here, and I hope these extras help you to take your climbing to new heights. Now, I'm sure you're already following Magnus on IG, at Magmit, and his YouTube channel, at Magmit. I've also published a video just recently with Magnus on my YouTube channel, at The Struggle Climbing Show, and a few more will be coming soon, so check that out. And subscribe to get two new videos a week featuring the biggest names in climbing. Just a huge thanks and appreciation to our show's sponsors who have brought you this episode at zero cost. Scarpa, Kaya, and Rungni, y'all are the best. Check your show notes for links and special discounts from those guys that are only available to struggle listeners. All right, y'all, that clips the anchors on this episode. Thank y'all so, so much for listening and supporting. And one other zero-cost way that you can support this show, if you'd like, is to rate and review the show on Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen. It'll only take you a few seconds. And then if you'd like, I'll send you a sticker just for being cool and supporting the show in that way. Just DM me on Instagram and I'll get it for you. Hey, did you know that the struggle's carbon neutral in partnership with the Honnold Foundation? Well, you do now. They are doing such amazing work to bring clean energy to communities around the world. You can get inspired by their latest grant recipients and learn more over at honnoldfoundation.org. Toss them some love if you can. They're truly doing such impactful and measurable work. And lastly, The Struggle is a proud member of the Plugtone Audio Collective, a diverse group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. This show was produced and hosted by me, Ryan Devlin. I hope your training and climbing are going great. And if you're struggling like I am, well, just remember, the struggle makes us stronger. See y'all.